It's Monday, July 25th. I'm Pam Jones. Baltimore has a new Democratic nominee for city state's attorney who also promised to crack down on violent crime. Violence over the weekend pushed Baltimore to another grim milestone in its homicide rate. Two settled, one to go in Baltimore County's three Democratic primary races. Westmore, Maryland's Democratic nominee for governor, says voters have a choice between unity and division. Governor Larry Hogan says Trump-backed nominee Dan Cox does not stand a chance in the general election. And Maryland's COVID positivity rate continues to climb amidst the looming BA5 variant and concerns about the spread of monkeypox. I have a conversation with an epidemiologist who breaks down the latest. It's the Daily Dose from WIPR, our latest reporting on Maryland's COVID-19 response and the local news of the day, made possible by GBMC Healthcare. Ivan Bates, who won the Democratic nomination for Baltimore City State's attorney, promised in a press conference today he will work to make the city safer. WIPR's Bethany Raja has the story. One thing Bates said he learned during his primary campaign was that Baltimoreans wanted a safer city, and as the city state's attorney, he'll deliver that. And your voice has been heard. There will be change in our city. I will also put on notice the violent repeat offenders. While I'm state's attorney, and I just have to get through the general, you will be held accountable, and you will go to jail. Surrounded by current and former city officials, Bates said this isn't about him, but it's about we and us. Because right now, Baltimore, we're in our silos. We're fighting, but we're not fighting together. We fight together, we can win together. Bates said his office won't go back to mass incarceration, but Baltimore will be a safer place. Bethany Raja, WYPR News. Baltimore recorded more than 200 homicides for the year over the weekend. The grim milestone followed a weekend of deadly violence where at least a dozen people were shot and killed. Officials say if the murder rate continues, the city could surpass the 300 mark for homicides for an eighth straight year. Two of the three Democratic primary races in Baltimore County that have been up in the air since Election Day appear to be settled. Delegate Pat Young has declared victory over Paul Dungara in the 1st District Council race. In the 6th District, Shafiq Hinton has conceded to Towson community activist Mike Ertel. That leaves the race for state's attorney yet to be settled as the counting of mail-in ballots continues. The three-way Democratic primary for governor was settled late Friday. The winner, former nonprofit exec and Rhodes Scholar Wes Moore, thanked his supporters during a press conference in Baltimore Saturday afternoon. If elected this November, Moore said his mission as governor would be to leave no one behind and ask for all Marylanders to work together to address issues. There is not a single person, a single entity, a single region or frankly a single political party that's going to figure this out. We need them all. Because in order for the long-term changes to take place within our state, it means we are going to move with a sense of collaboration and a sense of coordination. And to get there, we are going to need new ideas, a sense of togetherness, working across regional lines, civility and collaboration. 
He said abortion access, the environment, school funding, and increasing the minimum wage are some of the issues on the ballot this election season. Moore will face off with Republican gubernatorial nominee Dan Cox, and he vowed to take Cox and his alignment with Donald Trump seriously throughout his campaign. Dan Cox represents the most extreme fringe of American politics, and simply put, he is so far outside of the mainstream that I believe he would be dangerous in the governor's office. Mm. Moore said he looks forward to debating the views and vision from Maryland with Dan Cox in the near future, and that Marylanders have a choice. It's a choice between unity and division. It's a choice between a future built on hope and optimism versus a future built on cynical policies of conspiracy theories and fear. If victorious in November, Moore would become Maryland's first black governor, and his running mate would be the first woman of color and immigrant to be elected to a statewide position. Governor Larry Hogan says Republican gubernatorial nominee Dan Cox doesn't stand a chance of winning the election. Hogan made the comments while speaking with CNN's Jake Tapper Sunday morning, as WYPR's Rachel Bay reports. Hogan attributed Cox's win in part to low voter turnout in the primary. It's about 2% of the people of our state that voted for the guy, and uh, in the general election, I think it's going to be a different situation. According to the State Board of Elections, about 26% of voters are registered Republicans, but it's not yet clear how many of them voted in the primary. Overall, about a quarter of eligible voters cast a ballot. Hogan predicted that other, quote, fringe candidates will also lose their races in November. And then we're going to have to start thinking about between November's election and the election two years later, what kind of a party are we going to be and can we get back to a more Reagan-esque big tent party that appeals to more people? Hogan suggested recent political events have further encouraged him to run for president in 2024. Rachel Bay, WYPR News. U.S. Representative Dutch Ruppersberger is battling COVID for a second time this year. Representatives for the congressman announced his diagnosis today in an email. They say Ruppersberger is dealing with mild symptoms and is continuing to work from home. The lawmaker also tested positive in January despite being vaccinated and boosted. While the number of hospitalizations dipped slightly, Maryland's COVID positivity rate continues to climb. It now stands at 11.13% with 1,859 new cases of the virus and 570 people in the state in area hospitals. Dr. Greg Schrank is an assistant professor of medicine at the University of Maryland School of Medicine and a hospital epidemiologist and infectious disease specialist at the University of Maryland Medical Center. I spoke with him today about COVID-19 and the BA5 variant, among other things. We started with those in high-risk age groups and how susceptible they are when it comes to the highly transmissible BA5 variant. That's a great question. I think that um, one um, common theme that has been present throughout the pandemic is that there have been certain predictors of severe illness um, among people that become infected with COVID-19 that have remained relatively constant. Um, I think that the risk that has come from getting infected with COVID has dramatically decreased 
as a result of vaccination. Um, and so I, I believe strongly that vaccination is um, now actually even mo maybe even more so of, of the uh, most important predictor than when we think about risk after a COVID infection. Uh, but age certainly um, has remained throughout the pandemic, regardless of the variant, um, one of the most significant predictors of whether or not somebody will develop complications from COVID-19. Dr. Schrank, with all the different variants, how does one know if the BA5 variant is what they've contracted if they, if they come down uh, with COVID? There's no specific test that's available to an individual to decide to to determine which variant is causing their COVID-19 infection. Um, there is a large network of surveillance um, across the United States. Uh, that's often a collaboration between academic institutions, public health laboratories, um, and state-run facilities, as well as the CDC. Uh, with the aim to um, continuously gather data about variants that may be circulating out in the community. And this is how um, we have uh, been able to get some early warning signs of when a new variant may be emerging in the U.S. Um, the same is true abroad. There are other countries, uh, in particular South Africa, that has a very, very strong surveillance system uh, originally built for um, the purposes of of uh, managing the HIV epidemic there um, that, that helped to track the development of new variants. And um, so while the individual uh, person is not able to test um, to see what type of variant they are infected with, we do know that, um, that in a particular region of the U.S., uh, which variants are, are dominating the infections that are occurring in that location. Why is it that the BA5 is as highly transmissible as uh, what the you know other experts say and what we're seeing in the increased number of, of cases even here in, in Maryland? When thinking about the impact that um, a new variant of the SARS-CoV-2 virus will have upon, upon our communities, I think the two major factors that we need to take into consideration would be how much the virus differs um, from its predecessors, meaning has it evolved, has it changed to look substantially different from, from previous variants so that it, it's more difficult for our bodies and our immune systems to recognize and start to neutralize that virus quickly. Um, the other consideration is how efficiently, how effectively can the virus um, transmit itself from one person to another? So what we have in BA5, and really we have had with um, most of the Omicron subvariants so far, is a virus that's very efficient at transmitting um, itself from one person to another uh, because of high viral loads, meaning that a lot of virus is shed from our respiratory tract while we are infected. So now, doctor, we're just about uh, two and a half years into the pandemic uh, at this point, and, and there, is, um, there is much COVID fatigue, and there's no more mask mandates. Do we, do we need to go back to, to the mandates, you think? 
Well, I, I do think that we need to um, think about how we're framing the conversation around COVID very carefully. Um, there is often discussion of um, terminology and whether or not we are in a pandemic or we've reached a point in which COVID is endemic and should we be considering COVID like other respiratory viruses like the flu and making COVID part of our new normal. And I, and I, those are very important conversations certainly, but, but as we think about this, I, um, I, I do think it's, it's worth considering the if impact that influenza, that flu has had um, seasonal flu has had on, on our um, day-to-day lives and on our communities and what COVID is doing to us currently. So we um, know that across the United States, we have been averaging for now weeks to months, um, just about 300 or so deaths per day associated with COVID-19 infection. And that's right in the midst of spring and summer. Um, that would really be unheard of with, um, with a, a seasonal influenza strain. Uh, we have continued to see wave after wave of a uh, new variant that challenges our vaccines um, each time one emerges. Um, and uh, this is just associated with a burden of illness. Um, un- unlike that, we have experienced in, in recent times from a respiratory virus. And so um, what I, I, I think that the implementation of a policy like masking mandates requires careful consideration of whether or not the, the our public and our community members um, are, um, are are ready and feel that that's a, a you know a critical part of their day-to-day management of COVID-19 but it has to come with the, the context that COVID is in no way near um, a regular respiratory virus yet it is in no way near like a seasonal influenza virus. I know you don't have a crystal ball to see, you know, five or 10 years down the line, but when it comes to COVID, is it here to stay? It, it is here to stay. Um, and I, and I, I, I do think that um, it will be a part of our lives and it will be something that we need to learn to live with. But I, I do want to emphasize that um, we don't need to tolerate the level of, of infection and, and morbidity that we're seeing right now. We can certainly do better. And, and I think that um, accepting that our current state is here to stay, I think, um, allows us to fall into that sense that, uh, well, this is just what we need to learn to live with. But I do think that we have identified over the last two and a half years key tools um, that can help not only prevent infection, but prevent severe outcomes, prevent transmission. And so um, we haven't even today during our conversation discussed ventilation, but there is a lot of work that could be done across the country to update the um, the um, HVAC systems and ventilation and filtration systems within buildings, within workplaces and schools and daycare centers to try to prevent the spread of COVID-19 should an infected pers- person be in the workplace. There's a lot of work, as I mentioned, that could be done to update vaccines, um, even in particular with the next generation of vaccines that may be able to augment the immune response that's present in our respiratory tract, the main source of where we both become infected and subsequently spread the virus to help prevent 
infection altogether and ideally then prevent transmission altogether. That was Dr. Greg Schrank, assistant professor of medicine at the University of Maryland School of Medicine and a hospital epidemiologist and infectious disease specialist at the University of Maryland Medical Center. We thank him for his time. The Daily Dose is brought to you by WYPR, made possible by GBMC Healthcare. Many thanks to my news team colleagues, Rachel Bay, Shekinah Collier, Bethany Raja, John Lee, Joel McCord, and Kristen Mossbrugger. Our general manager is LaFontaine Oliver. The executive editor of The Daily Dose is Danielle Irby. If you have a scoop or suggestion for this podcast, my social media hangout is Twitter at That's Pam Jones. So remember to be courageous and stay curious. I'm Pam Jones. Thanks for listening.